I'm just wondering if I should share what we were discussing while that song was playing. I'll or tell not. you what, we'll, we'll leave the listeners to wait until you have incriminating evidence. <laughs> say no more, say no more. You're not very discreet. The ABC's word wizard, the lord of language, Professor Rowley Sussex with a word in your ear. Last week... We had quite the conversation about the pronunciation of this month. February. February, right. No, February. February. How many hours do you have? I have another word to add to the pile of, hang on a second, are we saying that correctly? Go on. And it relates to where the Broncos are playing this weekend in Las Vegas. Oh. Los, Las. Robin Ipswich said... Please, 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 mm. don't say Las Vegas. He's right. It's Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Yes, because Vega is a Spanish, and I think it's Catalan as well. In other words, you know, the bit of Spain which is northeast and they've got a separate language and, and so on, around Barcelona, Barcelona. Um, and Vega means a, a meadow or a, or a pasture. So Las Vegas is the meadows, which actually is a bit strange when you think of Vegas standing in the middle of a whole lot of sand, but never mind. Never mind. Yeah, doesn't it doesn't have is to make sense. Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Problem is the American pronunciation. Pronunciate. God, I've done it. The pronunciation <gasps> of the vowel written with an O. Yes. Um, that's the second time I've done that in 26 and a half years. So there you go. Sound the alarm. Yeah, I'm terrible. <laughs> All right. Uh, the Americans say guard. You know, I, I have guard something rather than got. We say got, they say a sort of an ah vowel. Yes. Not, re- not as much as our ah. But halfway in between, and so viva. Now he would, I would say Las Vegas, and he would not say Las Vegas, but Las Vegas, and it's kind of halfway in between. Oh it, yes, that's why you you can you think you're hearing Los. He's actually saying Las. It's a very is, very good little Elvis lilt you had in there, Raleigh Sussex. I, Las yeah, Vegas, well, Las. That, which brings us back to here again, and that's <laughs> a sore point. All right, a great question by text for you from Brian tonight, Rolly. He says, I train dogs and when I take them out, people ask me, can I pat them? And I say, yes, they're pattable. I've checked. And that isn't a word, yet it's so practical. How do I make it so it can be in the dictionary? The only way you can get it in the dictionary is by using it and making other people use it as well until the dictionary makers who are watching what's happening to the language, you know, they, they watch the internet and they do a, a, a check to see how many patables there are. If you do a check, check with Google, by the way, it'll tell you how many it finds. And so Google is, is the best search engine if you're trying to find out how many examples of a word have been recorded. If it's under the many millions, it's just about invisible. And I'm afraid this word is not there yet. But... It's perfectly pattern. It follows the English pattern, all right? Because words in able or ible meaning that which can be. You know, so kissable is that which can be kissed and so on. And the able ones come from French and the I-B-L-E ones come from Latin. There are thousands of both. And if you've got a verb like pat, which takes an object, you pat the dog, then the dog is patable. And that is entirely consistent with English. And I would expect that sooner or later... We'd get both, I don't know, strokeable for a cat and patable for a dog. So just because it's not in the dictionary doesn't mean it's not acceptable. If you wrote it, you would probably get pulled up by an editor who would say, you'll have to redo that because it's not in the dictionary. Right. If you say it when we have a lot more latitude, I think that that word is likely to be entirely acceptable to pretty well anyone. And unless you're being very, very 
sticky about things. Yes. There's another related one, by the way, which is a bit different, and that's potable, P-O-T-A-B-L-E, and that means drinkable. Now, we don't actually have a, a verb to pot, but we borrowed the word potable from French, complete, and potable in French means drinkable. So we say potable water, which means, you know, water which isn't stinky or whatever. Yes. And, but it doesn't have a matching verb. You would think that sooner or later they would invent one because we borrowed the word éditeur from French, which means actually not an editor but a publisher. But then we, people looked at it and said, oh, look, he's got an O-R on the R, editor. There ought to be a verb to go with it. We will invent edit. And they invented it. So it was invented in reverse almost. It was invented. It's called a back formation. Okay, and where people look at the word and say there ought to be this other bit to make it fit into the patterns. And so we invented edit and then we gave it a new meaning, which means to check a text for correctness. And so that's if you an editor in French is is a publisher, an editor in English is someone who checks for correctness. Fantastic! Uh, you never know what language uh, Professor Rolly Sussex will be speaking. Um, can I just while we're checking things off, Lancet Tambourine Mountain mm-hmm. wants to double check the correct spelling for buses. He's got B U S S E S, and he's saying it's now spelt B U S E S. And the, you, you might ask yourself too if you if you say that um, my school buses all its kids uh, in the morning, is that a double S E S or not? It's actually quite difficult. Um, the the dictionaries say double S for buses is American, and buses with one S is British and Australian. Right, but. There are lots of words in Australian English which sometimes follow the American spelling. Well, for example, sulphur. Now, after the war, a lot of the teachers, I'm afraid, had got killed during the war. They imported a lot of American teachers who spelt sulphur with an F and they used American textbooks which had an F. And so the pH sulphur started to become a, also you know, a, a, another, another choice rather than the only one. And there's a lot of that in Australian English. Mm, got it. Great question, Lance. Thank you. Al from Mount Gravatt asks, what is gaslighting? Oh, this is part of a whole family of words on social media where uh, gaslighting is actually a bit nasty. It, it means when you you write things to the other person to make them believe that they are mad or going crazy or they've lost their mind or they don't know anything or they're insignificant or no. And it, it actually comes from a film called Gaslight in 1940, I think it was four, with Ingmar Bergman, you know, the famous Swedish star, and Charles Boyer, and Lansbury in her very first film. It's an interesting one. And Gaslight, Gaslight was a, 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 a based on a play by that name around about 1938. I think the author was Patrick Hamilton or something. And it was exactly about this. The tra- husband treats his wife in a very horrible way to make her believe that she's going crazy. And so gaslighting on social media is one of these nasty, aggressive things that people do. Yeah. Uh, but it's not just in written form, is it? It can be oh no. verbally as well. Verbally as well. All of these, uh, I think they probably began being written in social media, but we now talk about them. And there are quite a few others, like sexting is sending uh, unpleasantly explicit images or language about someone. Uh, hat fishing is what... I might do because if you, you know about hat fishing? No. Oh, it's when men who are lacking in the hair department wear a hat when they're online 
to try and persuade the person at the other end that they probably under the hat have a full head of hair and they don't. I had never heard of that. Hat fishing. I'd heard of catfishing. Right. Catfishing is um, when you use a fake profile of yourself. Mm -hmm. In other words, you dream up some, you know, I'm I'm this muscly, heroic person of 23 instead of, well, we won't say. Um, There's also dog fishing, by the way, which is when you go online and you have a nice, cuddly sort of dog with you as a means of persuading the other person that you're an animal lover and therefore sweet and nice and kind and trustworthy and blah, blah, blah. Situationship. Yes. Situationship is when you've got a kind of ambiguous relationship. It hasn't declared itself to be passionate, romantic, physical or anything else. It's a some sort of association which is still waiting to become clarified. Situationship. Yes. Mm. So relationship, that one has actually gone a bit further. Situationship is one which is moving but you're not quite sure in what direction. Got it. Ghosting is when you suddenly disappear. You know, you're, you're talking to someone online and then you just suddenly don't respond anymore. No more messages. And that's also quite quite cruel, I think. Yeah. Um, and stashing is an odd one. It's when you've got a an online relationship with someone and maybe you meet them in real life, but you keep them separate from all your other friends and relations. In other words, stash means to 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 secrete away. So you're keeping them in a little sort of pocket of your life and you don't you don't let them see any of your other friends. What is breadcrumbing? Breadcrumbing. Um, breadcrumbing is it, – it, it came about through the searches you do online and a breadcrumb trail is when you know how to get from one, you, one website to another, one URL to another one. But you're not really very conscious of the objective links between one and the other. You know, you can vaguely remember I got to this because I was thinking about that and that brought me to this website which took me to that one. And if you can backtrack enough, you can sometimes find where you were and how you found something. So breadcrumbing is when you send um, disconnected messages from time to time. In other words, instead of being there every hour for the person you're trying to persuade well, about whatever. Um, you send them a message now and they're nothing until next Thursday and they don't seem to hang together and they're a bit sort of random, mm. su- suggesting not really very much considerate Yeah, unsatisfying. Unsatisfying. Little, little yeah. droplets. If someone is breadcrumbing you, I think you might as well drop them and put the breadcrumbs in the, in the fire. Yeah, gather them up and make a loaf. Um, these are all quite mean. Or cruel words, mm. aren't they? This little batch: dog fishing, cat fishing, hat fishing, bread crumbing. Some of them, are what, I think, most of them suggest an unsatisfactory relationship of one kind or another. Yeah, you're you're trying to have false pretenses about your hair, your personality, or whatever, or you're actually being quite nasty to the other person and manipulating them or um, using them or playing with them as if they were, they're not nice. No. Perhaps we, I mean, we did do a bunch of uh, romantic words when we had our Valentine's Day show. So uh, This is the other side. Yes. This and is I'm the afraid that social media, because it can be anonymous, you know, you, you can have a, an account under an entirely fictitious name, which can't be, in some cases, traced back at, uh, to you anyway. Mm. So it gives people a kind of license to do these sorts of things. And there are, I'm afraid, nasty, vindictive people out there who do this for fun. 
just as there are colossal number of people. I believe that out of the email traffic, about 73% is phishing, spam and other bad stuff. What a waste of a decent medium. Absolutely. That is That is a number reported by one of the international agencies. Disheartening, depressing almost. Uh, uh, Mind you, it's not people doing it so much as it's done... It's bots. Yeah. And I get phone calls every day, usually at about 12.04, from Sierra Leone and other places, and I religiously block every one of them, and the next day they found another number, and the phone rings again, and I block that one as well. Yeah. All right. We're all about a high-quality communication and information here on ABC Radio Brisbane and Queensland. Rolly Sussex here this evening. Uh, certainly not hat fishing. I'm still stuck on that word because it's just a brand new one for me tonight and especially given our... Well, look, ladies sometimes when they go out and they haven't had time to do their hair properly will wear a hat as a means of concealment. Tuck it up underneath. That's right. Hide it. Um, There is a meaty conversation I've been wanting to have with you, Rolly Sussex, based on a, a quirky little piece of commentary that I heard online. May I play it for you? Go ahead. Have you ever thought why we say the word pig for the animal, but the meat is pork? Cow for the animal, but the meat is beef. Sheep is the animal, but the meat is mutton. Well, it's because England was ruled by uh, the French for 300 years. They spoke actual French, not English, and they were the only ones who ate that meat, so they used the French word for it. The common people did not eat those meats. Why is the animal chicken? And the meat is also chicken, and the same for turkey and rabbit. That's because the upper class did not eat those meats, so the words remained the same as the Anglo-Saxon. Quite interesting, isn't it? Is that true? About 60%, yes. Uh, In 1066, William the Conqueror crossed the Channel and beat Harold at the Battle of Hastings. And for 300-plus years, the upper classes spoke French. Okay, so that was the language of prestige. And the, the literature and the literary language of English, which was already under Alfred the Great, was doing very well, became the language which was used by, you know, illiterate people or... Uh, tradespeople and what have you. But then you get Chaucer, who died in 1400, who wrote in English, you know, the, the Canterbury Tales. And English was back roaring as, a, as a, a really sophisticated language of poetry and communication. As far as the meats go, he's got most of it right, but not all. I mean, for example, quail was a very upper-class sort of thing. The, the upper-class used to eat quail, and the meat is quail as well. So that there are some which don't. But this actually comes from... The first observation of this was a man called Walter Scott who wrote a novel called Ivanhoe in 1820. And he spotted this very odd dislocation uh, that in, in French, the name of the, la- the animal is also the name of the meat and so on. Uh, mouton is, a, is a, a sheep and it's also mutton and so on. You can see how they came from. But uh, there were obviously problems with English cooking even back then. And so they used the French words for the meat of these things, but the English words for the animals. Yeah. It's another one of those uh, situations that comes up a lot when you and I talk, Rolly, where words in common use, if you don't pause to think about them, I'd never thought before it's a pig, but we call the meat pork. That's right. It's a cow, but we call the meat beef. That's right. But that doesn't apply. A chicken is a chicken. But a pig or a sow or a piglet all give you pork. And the word in French is pork, P-O-R-C. Um, and it, it is a kind of, I don't know, 
trace of cultural history, I suppose. English is full of them if you know where to look. Mm. About 29% of our vocabulary comes from French. Um, and, for example, after, after William the Conqueror arrived in 1066, in the next century or so, 15,000 French words were being used uh, in England. And they were part of the English language or what was, you know, a kind of grey area between English and French. Yes. And I feel like, like my dad learnt French at school. It seemed to be the dominant language perhaps oh. for that baby boomer generation, mm-hmm. whereas it, now there's much more diversity in languages. That's right. It, it, it was the language that people learnt at school. I mean, when I went to school, I, I had to do Latin. And I had to do French because that was what everybody did in no grade one. Mm. Well, no, it's actually grade five, I think. Um, that was in New Zealand. But what happened more since then is that we've become very much more aware that Australia is actually much closer to Asia. And there was a big um, push for learning Indonesian and J- Japanese, followed now by Chinese. And this is entirely valid in terms of languages which we need for geopolitics and economics and tourism and other things in this part of the world. Rolly, did you do all of your schooling in New Zealand? Mm, I went to New Zealand when I was 10. Dad became professor of French at the University of Canterbury. And so I finished primary school and then did secondary school and university in New Zealand. So where were you born? I was born in Melbourne. Born in Melbourne. Okay, so Melbourne up until 10, New Zealand... Well, Melbourne up until 10, except for a year in France when I left my appendix in Paris, yes. <laughs> Not your heart, your appendix? My appendix, which I think gives me, I mean, I've been contributing to French agriculture ever since. I need a passport, thank you. I yes, like the French. Yes, indeedy. What I was going to ask you, your time in New Zealand then learning Latin and French. Mm. And did, Russian. Was there any um, Maori language incorporated in your school? No. None at all. I went, I went to a rather posh single-sex boys' school where we had straw hats and uh, starched collars and school on Saturdays. and uh, it, it was very, very traditional British. And uh, the only Maori that was there, we used to say Maori, and nobody paid any attention to Maori pronunciation. And there was a Waimakariri River, which was the Waimak, north of Christchurch. Uh, and people, I'm afraid, butchered the Maori language. Mm. What has happened since... Um, because I left there in 74. Um, no, I left New, left New Zealand in 68. But my family, who I've got a sister in Auckland and her family, they use a lot of Maori words. And when they do so, they pay the language the great compliment of switching into Maori pronunciation. And they write Maori with a long line over the A, which means it's a long A. And uh, in fact, on my spelling checker, it actually, when I write Maori, it puts in the accent for me as well. Yes, which is very clever. Yeah, I, I feel like it, New Zealand seems to have incorporated uh, Maori language, perhaps more successfully in perhaps politics and life and whatnot. Much easier. Yeah, much easier because they've only got really one indigenous language. Right. We have possibly three hundred and forty. No one knows quite how many there are because the boundary between language and dialect is very, very mixed. The other word that I notice uh, in New Zealand that stands out to me sometimes is when referring to a group of women, Mm -hmm. the word is woman. Have you noticed that? Yes, I have. Uh, And that's just an oddity. Um, Women with the it vowel is very old in English. It's been around for hundreds of years. And New Zealand is the only place that I know that pronounces W-O-E-A-W-M-E-N. As woman, it's it's very unusual. Yeah, 
Um, Brant on text says, uh, hey, Rolly, if patable, just going back to yes. Brian's uh, word for patting dogs, if patable is in wide use within Australia, could it make an Australian edition of a dictionary? I've heard it in England. I've heard it in Scotland and I've heard it in New Zealand so mm. that it's not just ours. Right. And it's one of the words which I think, because you know, wherever people like dogs and go walking with dogs, there will be certainly other people and children who want to pat it. And there's a, mo- a, a, a moment when you need a word. Yes. And I would guess, I mean, I, I can't right now, but if we did a search for Google, maybe a producer can, for patable, I think you'd probably find well over a million hits. Yeah. Use it, Brant. Use it, Brian. And thank you also, Brian, for your beautiful images of your dogs that you train. So there's some Maltese dogs in there, a poodle, a chihuahua, maybe a staffy as well. That's a great group of dogs. It What's is. the collective noun for dogs? I'm not sure that they're... Pack. A pack, a pack of anything, yes. Pack of dogs. We can, we can do collectives next week, if you like. There's a whole stack of those, many of which go back to venery, which is the, uh, the discipline of hunting. And these words were what a young squire learnt in 1400 when he was going out with his bow and arrow to try and shoot something for dinner. Okay, great. I actually had a, um, I guess it's a collective now and come up, I was playing a game of Boulder Dash Mm -hmm. with my sons and my husband the other night. You know this game, Mm -hmm. Boulder Dash? You would be so good at Boulder Dash, Rolly Sussex. And the word that came up was shamozzle. And apparently that's a group of two or more monkeys. Now, shamozzle in our family, we we say shamozzle all the time, meaning like a mess, like mm. things are out of whack. Yeah, and that's, that's shamozzle, it, it comes from Yiddish. And Yiddish is a dialect of German spoken by Jewish people. Okay, and for a long time it was the most common language used by Jewish people wherever they lived. Okay, uh, it comes from Hebrew, and it, it, it uh, well it comes from Old Hebrew, and it means of no luck, something with no luck. Oh. So shemozel is a bad thing. And well, maybe shemozel in that edition of Balderdash is incorrect because it's, it's quite possible, uh, un- unless it's a local usage. I'll check it out, but I don't think it is. Um, there would be a lot of people around the world who looked up the Yiddish word mensch today. Oh yes, M E N is it S C H? S C H in German and S H in Yiddish. The reason being that um, there is a doctor over in America who just made a $1.5 billion donation to a university, to yes. a medical school, to erase all of the the debts mm. of those medical students. Oh, what a nice gesture. Incredible. And so someone referred to uh, the doctor as being, you know, kind of the living definition of mensch. Yes. Mensch is a, you can say, oh, mensch. Uh, and that's a used by a Jewish people, uh, and means oh, what a what a what a guy, what a fantastic person. It's a sign of uh, admiration, and so M E N S H is would be the Yiddish one. Yes. and Yiddish is still very widely spoken in New York. Okay, and integrity. I think it was kind of when I looked it up. That was the word that stood up stood out yeah, to me yeah. today as a person of integrity, as well. It is five to eight. This is just rocketed along every time I, I fall into the Rolly Sussex universe with you. So five minutes before news at eight o'clock, um, you put a note in tonight for mentioning something as a fun aside, and I can't even pronounce the word Rolly Sussex. Do you know what I'm talking about? Go ahead. Bostrophedontic? Yes, <laughs> Bostrophedontic. And this is 
I'm fascinated by writing and the way people write. You know, in some languages you can write downwards. In uh, Mongolian, you even used to be able to write upwards. Some languages print from right to left, and you know, like Hebrew and and um, Arabic. Uh, we go left to right. But there was in early days of printing and writing something which went left to right and then it turned the corner and went down to the next line and went right to left. And the letters were backwards. And bostrophodontic is Greek and it means how the ox plows. And so if you think of the, the ox, you plow along one furrow, you make a jump to the next one and you come back. And what you do is a mirror image of what you've just done. So that was one of the ways they used to print in very early days. Boustrophodontic is a lovely word. It is a lovely word, boustrophodontic. Yes. How difficult then to read, or I suppose your brain and your eyes Your just... brain, look, my, my children could read, they, they learned to read when they were four, and they could read as well upside down as right way up. And it's a skill which you lose when you become properly literate and you start focusing on the standard way that words are written. The other interesting one is that, of course, in Latin in the olden days, they wrote it continuously. There were no gaps between words until about the 11th century when the Irish, who at that stage knew more Latin than anybody else, uh, were starting to write manuscripts with spaces between the words. So why do we in English write left to right, line by line by line? Because that was the way the French did it and the French did it because that was the way the Romans did it and the Romans did it because that's the way the Greeks did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, there was another group of languages called Semitic languages, which is Arabic and Hebrew, and they started writing right to left. Now, given that 95% of people are right-handed, it's much easier to write left to right if you're right-handed. If you're going to write right to left, then you'd really need to be left-handed. But certainly in in Muslim cultures, there is a big uh, phobia about left-handedness and left things. The word left is bad. Really? After all, the word, in Latin, the word for left is sinister. No way. Whereas the word for right is dexter. So if you're dexterous or ambidextrous, you've got two right hands, right? But if you're sinister or sinistrous, and after all, sitting on the right hand of God the Father was good, the left hand was a bad thing. And you need to be very careful about um, cultural practices and the left hand in Muslim cultures. Have a look at it in in Wikipedia. It'll tell you all about it. So interesting. And also, you know, when you're picking up a Japanese book as well, you're reading from the back of the book to the front. Yes. And the language written downwards downwards as well. Well, we have been around the world tonight, Rolly Sussex. Have you got a final word for us this evening? I got to what I wanted to talk about, oh, which, which was what? exclamation marks. Oh. That, that will hold until next week. Yes. They're not going to go away and they're probably going to proliferate even more than they did. Yes. Last, I promise you, next last, week we will talk we about will exclamation talk. marks. Yes. That was every word promise? with an exclamation mark. Yes. yes. With an exclamation mark. This is from an American called Billy Sunday. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you into an automobile. Well said. Thank you. Rolly Sussex. I promise. Pronunci- uh, no, no, exclamation marks next week. Pronunciation. And pronunciation as correct as I can get it. Las Vegas, February. And Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Which is roughly what Elvis, Elvis said. Thank you. Thank you yeah. very much. 
You've been listening to A Word in Your Ear with Professor Rowley Sussex, a podcast from ABC Radio Brisbane. Every week on the ABC Listen app.